No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me again this week on the program is nobody. This week I want to talk about uh, a little bit more of a less personal, more um, universal aspect of where we die. And in doing so, uh, I don't have an interview for today, but I am actually happy to announce I do have some on the docket coming up in the future, so it'll be really fun to get people back down here into the basement talking to me and telling me why this is not the creepiest goddamn thing in the world. That being said, thank you for joining me today. This is a podcast about how we are all doomed no matter what we do. Um, It is a central facet of human existence. It is a central facet of existence, period. And so I am here to talk about why that matters and how that is affecting our mortal existence. Before I get too far into that, I want to, one, as always, thank you for listening. It blows my mind that anybody would take time out of their busy day to listen to something that has dead in the title and not in a fun or snarky way. This is just simply, uh, we are all going to die someday. Um, This is not a cry for help. I don't think, uh, <laughs> my therapist doesn't think so, but you know, maybe hindsight, this will all stitch together in a nice kind of, uh, seven-esque thing, but no, this is, uh, this is meant to be an examination of how our, uh, our mortal existence shapes our life, how it affects what we do and what we're doing in it, and really it's a chance to peek under the bed and see, are there really monsters under there? Um, so, I already got off track. I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate you. Um, additionally, if you have questions, thoughts, comments, feedback, concern, please reach out to me via the internet. You could try sending snail mail if you can track me down. Honestly, if you can track me down and send me a letter or a postcard, I will be shocked and disturbed and possibly read it on the air. But, if you'd otherwise like to send correspondence, preferably digital, you can reach out at yourdead2 at gmail.com, Y-O-U-R-E-D-E-A-D-T-O-O at gmail.com, or on Twitter or Instagram at yourdead2. I generally consider the uh, world of social media in general to be somewhere between a vacuum and a weapon used against us, so I will approach conversation there accordingly and be extremely cautious, but I would be happy to hear from anybody, so please reach out if you've got questions, comments, thoughts, feedback, whatever you'd like to share, Uh, spooky stories, insight you may have, um, an experience with the dead and dying that you think is worth noting, or maybe point me to a helpful article to say, this is how you deal with these uh, existential concerns, because frankly, if I don't know, how am I going to be able to tell anybody about it? I think this is just a fun thing for me to do. Uh, you know, on a quiet morning. This is something that I'm able to come down here and have a cup of coffee and talk about death and dying. And um, you don't really get to do that at cocktail parties or over dinner conversation. So this is my way to kind of um, exercise those demons, so to speak. But before I jump into where we die and how that affects us, I want to touch briefly again on the, um, the world around me today being Thursday the 6th. Currently, we are still in the um, emerging stages of the outbreak of the coronavirus. Um, For further context and history, it is 2020. If you are listening from the future, the Senate has recently acquitted the president of any crimes, so that may be the death of a 
um, Republic. So maybe that's appropriate for down the road, but that helps isolate this moment in time from where we are. But the coronavirus is still making its head reared, still rearing its head, making its presence known throughout the world. We are now worldwide with cases. I continue to tell myself I'm not freaked out by it, and yet I continue to obsess about it and pick at it like a scab that I can't let heal. Um, So as I read more about it, I'm not... Okay, yes, I'm concerned about getting it only in that I also am concerned about getting paper cuts. Like, I don't want to get it. I don't want to have something happen. I don't want something, you know, I don't want to get sick. Who wants to get sick? Nobody likes being sick. Nobody's like, oh, it's the best. I don't like being sick. So, yes, I have that concern for it. But I'm here in Minnesota. The majority of the cases are over in mainland China. Uh, There is a case now confirmed in Wisconsin, Uh, There are cases all over the planet. The notion of how much the numbers are accurate is one that's becoming a fun conspiracy theory to watch unfold. I am somebody who loves a good conspiracy theory, but I also like poking holes in them and saying, what a bunch of horse shit. I remember um, (laughs) the uh, ascendant days of the internet, uh, which was for me post-college, kind of... The 2005-2006 era of the internet as we know it today, which was a remarkably long time ago. It's paleolithic in comparison to where we are with meme culture. But uh, the documentary Loose Change – I say documentary in loose air quotes. The documentary Loose Change had come out, and that was the conspiratorial one about 9-11 and whether it was an inside job and if there were missiles fired or if there were – all of that. Um, fascinating to watch. Nothing gets me going like ominous music and whispered conspiratorial tones and insinuations of malevolence. But it just, you know, I don't think it really holds up. Uh, also, the the notion there was a webcomic that went around in reaction to it of like, Sir, we've pulled off the greatest masterminded uh, evil plan of the world to let 9-11 happen. What could possibly stop us? Well, what if one YouTuber gathered a bunch of grainy video clips and put them all together, outlining our entire plan from start to finish, enabling everyone around the world to see exactly what we pulled off, and we just left that documentary up on YouTube? Right, that's exactly how absurd it would be. That's that's the game of this. That's the refuge and audacity of, like, it's... <laughs> you can see I just clam up talking about this shit too. So some of the appeal of conspiracy theories is that they give a sense of order to the world where we perceive there to be none. It, it you know, Somebody's in control, therefore somebody must know what's going on. Um, with the coronavirus, people are dying. It, it's not fun and games. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm making light of this because that's how we deal with death and destruction and mortality is that we, we laugh in the face of death. You... Uh, have the darkness that comes and you say, not today, you bastards. So we're getting conflicting information. There's a real media blackout happening with the uh, Chinese government and what they're allowing to be broadcast versus how they've quarantined people. Um, any dissent is quickly snuffed out, as is uh, longstanding tradition from the Chinese government. So we are being told that infections are up to 27,000 with somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 deaths. Interestingly, recently, um, a number popped up on a monitoring website from Tencent, which 
showed something in the neighborhood of 155,000 infections and 25,000 deaths. Obviously a stark difference. The numbers were then quickly corrected or scrubbed back down to their accurate values to what they are. So there's no way of knowing what that was about. It could just be a bug. It could be somebody hit the wrong data and entered one too many digits. Or, I mean, I used to be in the world of banking. I know that you can just sometimes fat finger something and whoops, suddenly the whole spreadsheet's out of balance. It gives me pause to think though that, um, Gee, I don't know, maybe the Chinese government's trying to spin it for control of an outbreak and the appearance of um, competency that it's not as bad as it seems and that they've got a much better response time. Certainly the World Health Organization was really kowtowing in their speeches two weeks ago. Um, what if it was that bad? I don't know. If it's that bad, we would suddenly be looking at a much different scenario. But in the meantime, we have no way of knowing what's actually happening. So all we can do is really uh, wash our hands, stay home if we get sick, drink lots of water. That's really about it. Uh, be honest about your travel and where you're going. Beyond that, there's not a lot of agency you can have over it. You can buy some supplies should a quarantine happen, but uh, I don't want to encourage alarmist behavior. Yet. Do I? Probably not. I don't think this is culpable in any way? Question mark? Maybe I stop now. Okay. Anyway. The coronavirus is out there. It's happening. Um, we don't know how bad it's going to be. We're being told one set of numbers and that the death rate is, while worse than the normal flu, not over 5%. Uh, Yet there are fleeting glimpses to an underbelly where maybe that is the case, and the death roll death toll is closer to 8%. Uh, that would be a horrible mortality rate, and we'd be in much different shape. So maybe this is a fun postcard from a pre-apocalyptic society where I can say, Hi, John, I hope you're doing well in the future, but uh, we didn't know what was coming. But maybe we did? Hopefully we didn't. I don't know. I'll get off my high horse and talk about where we die. Tune in. Having had some coffee and calmed down a little bit, this week I wanted to talk about where we die. And this is a bit in relation to uh, what I've talked about in the book report episode I did this previous summer about Atul Gawande's fascinating book, Being Mortal, which looked at his experience as a doctor dealing with the dying and how they are dealt with and how people's wishes are or are not honored, and how we have set up this weird industry around death and dying that has not necessarily been the most enjoyable process for everybody, and how that pendulum swings. So uh, what got me going on this was that I was looking into, well, okay, look, I'm just, I obsessively read the news. This is what I do. I'm neurotic, and I am aware of that. I'm working to combat that. I I'm currently uh, four months off of alcohol. Uh, I take medication. I meditate. I go to a therapist. Um, I, I have a lot of anxiety. I try to exercise that how I can and deal with it, but I read the news obsessively. And uh, for, I guess, want of 
being ahead of the other shoe dropping. And in this case, I was just plugging in some basic terms around death in the podcast that I want to be able to stay up on in case, hey, what if there's a new emerging thing? Uh, and I actually came across an article from Reuters written by Gene Emery suggesting that uh, we are now dying at home more in America than we are anywhere else, which seems good, question mark? I think it's good. It's most likely a good thing. Uh, it's not for everybody, but the for the first time since we've been keeping records since the 1970s about, uh, well, <laughs> let me back up. We've been keeping records much longer than that, but as far as where and how people are dying, not just in the sense of like coroner's notes or a mortician saying a cause of death was at blah, 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 blah. Uh, this is more in the sense of if somebody is sick and know that they are dying, if somebody is like, okay, I am going to be, I know that my time is short, here is where I am going to be. Instead of being in a hospital and monitored and, you know, on various machines, people are opting to go home or be in hospice care more often. This is the first time since we've been really accurately tracking this information, uh, which began in the early 70s, that this has surpassed being in the hospital. So uh, what I had talked about in Atul Gawande's in the episode about Atul Gawande's book, was that as a society becomes more advanced and more modernized in our current understanding of it, we go through this phase of people stop dying at home and they begin dying at hospitals again as medical care increases and uh, propagates throughout the nation. And then as that kind of spreads and, uh, for lack of a better term, metastasizes, um, people begin dying at home more again as people have elected to forego the, well, the process of dying in a hospital because it can be a um, cold and clinical one, for lack of a better term, or just unfamiliar. So people are choosing. This speaks to my own bias because I don't, <laughs> I don't inherently like the thought of dying at home. And maybe that's just me not liking the thought of dying because when I think about it, it gives me pause. I don't know where I'm thinking I would want to die as opposed to dying at home because, I don't know, I've got all my stuff here and my my wife and my daughter are here and I don't uh, want to foul their existence with my dying body. But again, that's how this works. If you would ask me, hey, do you want to die in the hospital? Well, uh, no, I guess. I mean, ideally, I'm on the moon, that'd be a cool place to die. Or, uh, you know, triumphantly stabbing a sword into the heart of a beast while the beast also kills me. Like, I, I don't know what it is that I'm expecting that I would want. But I can tell you, for some reason, I get squicked out by the thought of dying at home. And yet, the most natural thing in the world. Uh, I suppose that is just, that's a real example of me having to confront my own mortality and my own uh, vanity of doing all this podcast stuff is that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die too. I, I don't delude myself of that, but the practical reality of it is a bit jarring to say the least. So people are choosing to die at home. They want to be surrounded by friends, family, loved ones in a place that is familiar to them and be comfortable. You know, nobody wants to go cowering like a son of a bitch in the desert and say, I, you know, oh, woe is me. Everybody wants to be surrounded by loved ones and wants to be cared for. Um, that's very understandable. So I needed to kind of get my head around this before I really dug into it more. Uh, not surprisingly, as I also talked about in that Gatul or the in the 
episode about Atul Gawande's book, that this is first and foremost afforded to those who have the means to do so. Um, so the privilege of being able to die at home surrounded by friends and family is now first afforded to men, whites, and older patients uh along with people suffering from cancer. So basically the way societal hierarchy has been structured and maintained for the past mm, 400 years in America, I know the country's not that old, shut up. For the last X amount of societal years in America that uh, it's white men who run everything. Um, They've made this system for themselves, and I can say that as one of them myself, uh, we're the worst. We we are... um, selfish. That's what we do. We're self-serving, but that's also humanity. Humanity is self-serving. It takes... That's why acts of kindness and benevolence are seen as uh, the grace of God or uh, selfless acts because they go in the face of our hardwiring. So because old white men have the wealth that they've amassed they are able to be afforded that care or the opportunity to die at home rather than being uh, chained to a hospital bed. Um, Stroke victims, people recovering from a stroke, are least likely to die at home. They are most likely recovering in the hospital. It's a matter of numbers and how that affects people's ability to get around. Um, If you have dementia, you're most likely to pass in a nursing facility. Um, If you are suffering from a respiratory disease, it's most likely to be in a hospital. These are places that are going to be best equipped and prepared and have the best practical reasons for having somebody in them to be uh, cared for. You know, it's, you're not going to just arbitrarily bring somebody with dementia home because you feel like their time is short necessarily. Oftentimes they are continued to be cared for in the facility that they're in because they are best equipped with the best uh, facilities and staff and uh, all of the accoutrement to have somebody uh, be cared for and be comfortable because it's it's a long and exhausting process to be doing this. Um, to that end, it's it's, it's, again, it's a matter of practicality that that home death can be difficult because people are not necessarily prepared for it. Um, yeah, you can have somebody in your life who's sick and dying for a long time, but that doesn't mean you're any closer to facing the reality of it. I mean, I know that I am considered a very odd bird for talking about this at length like I do. It's That is not lost on me. I know that my comfort level with it is also a bit of a morbid fascination in that it, it's generally seen as distasteful to be doing this, so people are not thrilled to be just picking up the ball and running with it. Um, also, just from a practicality standpoint, hospitals, it, you can't get as many people in a room, for example. You can't have an entire family gathered around somebody. Uh, there are also restrictions on visiting hours. There are restrictions on... Um, when children could be present or if you can have pets there. You know, that's that's a very common thing is that uh, humans like pets, and so they want to be around their pets, and so you can't necessarily have them in the hospital if you want to be around. Anyway, people would choose to die at home because they have the ability to be there and be cared for. They can hire a private nurse to come and take care of them, or they have the ability to have hospice care where they are um, checked in on on a regular basis and made sure that they're being uh, 
comforted and provided care, uh, medication to lessen pain or anxiety related to death or being able to simply breathe or uh, cleaning wounds or whatever have you about the dying process. But again, this is where that notion of wealth and societal advantage comes in. If, well, okay, so it's also worth noting, young people are much more likely to die in a hospital because they are much more likely to undergo emergency medical intervention. You know, if something happens, it's it's a not a cost-benefit thing that we look at, but uh, if somebody's lived a good life, a good long life, and they're in old age, maybe they choose not to have every aggressive treatment done, and so they want to be able to, uh, rather than aggressively fight something until the last goddamn minute, they just they go home and spend time peacefully uh, enjoying their last days, hours, weeks, whatever it is. Um, yeah, the young are generally, we work to save them. They have, uh, they deserve a chance still. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm just stating the obvious here, but maybe that's what the point of the podcast is. I don't know. So this growth that we've seen, uh, they, they were measuring it from 2003 to 2017. Um, At-home deaths have increased by 29%. Deaths in the hospital have decreased by 25%. Um, Hospice facilities went from 0.2% in 2003 to 8.3% in 2017, uh, which was, I think the article said, a 41-fold increase. So yeah, the hospitality, Jesus God, John, the hospice industry has seen this huge increase in utilization, which I would generally see as a good thing. It's kind of that middle ground between being stuck in a hospital, but you're given these treatment options with being at a more comfortable place. This is all ostensibly good news is what I'm driving at here. People want to be able to die at home surrounded by loved ones. Um, Like I said, this is something that is afforded mainly to old white men. If you are young, it's most likely not going to be the case. Uh, if you are anything other than white, just the odds of accumulated wealth are unfortunately stacked against you in society, which is a whole nother soapbox that I would be happy to get on and rant and rave about, but maybe another white guy can just shut up about it for a minute and let other people talk about it. Um, additionally, gender is an issue as well. Men tend to die earlier than women. Women are often seen as the caregivers in the relationship, and then just like, okay, that's not... Again, this is not about me breaking gender norms. This is just... Men die first, generally. Biologically, we wear our stupid-ass machines out faster than the women do, and uh, as a result, men are selfishly able to have all of the world gather around them and see them out of here, uh, and then women are left on their own to be cared for by the next generation, and they die in hospice or they die in a nursing home. So you can hear where my frustrations come in. Um, but again... Uh, better, more adept minds, more nuanced minds than mine can speak at better length about this because I'm just uh, one person shouting in the basement. So here's the thing. Uh, home deaths jumped to where up, upwards of 30% of deaths are at home. In Canada, 59%. In the UK, 46%. We have a long way to go here. This is, uh, as somebody said 
online recently, being Canadian is like having a neighbor whose car alarm is going off 24-7 for the last four years, and you have no way of turning it off. To which somebody else responds, yeah, imagine being locked inside that car then and being unable to turn it off. I know things are generally not good in America right now. Um, It's quiet here. I'm all by myself. It's nice and quiet. That doesn't mean I don't know that the country isn't burning down around us. But uh, Canada's doing a lot of things right. As it's been said before, Canada is kind of like if you took America and then you implemented all of its ideas properly. Uh, This is what it would look like. And yeah, they have the ability to have their citizens die at home with their family surrounded by loved ones because um, they're not being monetarily punished for being sick. Um, The idea of having... The same way, you know, your taxes pay for roads and firemen and policemen, uh, that also goes to the medical care. And so people are not as scared of going to the doctor and being treated and then being able to go home. They have a much different relationship in these countries where they have <gasps> socialized medicine. It's It shouldn't be a punishment for getting sick. I didn't think that I'd be getting this, um, I don't know hippy-dippy liberal socialists on a podcast about death, but I'm generally trying to work against selfishness here. I'm generally trying to work against, I don't know, you know, see, this is where it becomes difficult for me to get off of a soapbox when this is also just the point of this, that I'm standing on a soapbox in my basement. Jesus Christ, John. I, I... I, I, I bitch about society. I complain about Western culture. And it's not because I just see it as this cesspool. It's because I know that it can be done better. I know that we don't have to just go to the lowest common denominator. But it just seems like taking care of people shouldn't be such a stretch of the imagination. That the idea of a community is not a, a, a foreign thing. You know, people rally around families. Uh, people want to take care of those that need it. It's like with uh, GoFundMe and Kickstarter, those those tech startups were not seen as medical disruption fields, and yet that's the most common way we see people supporting anybody in a medical crisis is paying bills. Like, guys, how do we not extrapolate this from, look, if we're all chipping in to pay for this, why don't we organize this shit on an institutional level and just do it countrywide so nobody has to fear not getting the treatment that they need? But, okay. Anyway, the point is people are able to die at home. That is generally a good thing. Uh, it can cause a strain in that uh, people aren't caregivers necessarily in the way that they need to be. I had... A very formative experience when my dad's father passed away at his childhood home. This was a rare thing in that uh, he was born and died in the same room. I remember being surprised by that as a younger person, and as I've gotten older, I just I think of the just magical circularity of that and how strange and wonderful that is that he got to have that experience. And you know, I was in my early teens and really dealing with turbulent, stormy neurochemicals. My family was very patient with me. Um, 
I knew what was happening. I understood what was going on. He had been sick for a long time, and he had changed from the person that he was to something that was stepping off of the stage. You know, life is a big production, and everybody has a time to step onto the stage, and then they say all their lines, and they exit the stage. And it was time for his his time to step off, and he understood that. He seemed to have some peace with that, and it was really... uh, profound and you know one of my first major experiences with death and loss in a way that uh, directly impacted me thankfully as a sheltered you know midwestern kid but my his his wife my grandma was a nurse and uh, one of his daughters was a nurse as well and they as I was alluding to earlier you know my grandfather had the the means and the support system to have people caring for him. He got to be at home surrounded by family. And like I said, we had as many people as we could gathered in the room around him at various times talking and sharing stories. And uh, it's, I understood that. That made sense to me. To It didn't seem bizarre, you know. So in my in my own experience with it, it did seem nice, but I, I realize now that my grandmother and my aunt were were actively caring for him, which must have been difficult. It must have been a burden, and it must have been trying and exhausting. And knowing that this is happening, like, I just, I can't imagine having to do some of those things, but I suppose just like changing diapers on a baby, you just, you kind of shrug and do it, you know? You just... It's you love somebody, and this is what's required of it. Um, but they had people that could do it, and they were not afraid of it. They were not shying away from it. And for for a lot of people, this is why I talk about how difficult it can be. Uh, a lot of people just aren't emotionally equipped to be able to do so. They were particularly. Uh, women of particular mental fortitude who had literal training in what they were doing. Not everybody can do that. And not only that, my grandmother had actually made, as I've said in the past, uh, that was a place for uh, people in the community to come and die. She had she served as a hospice nurse for the small town in which she lived, and uh, <laughs> it was a bit disturbed to find out as I got older how many people had actually died in the house because when I would... Uh, stay there as a young kid, uh, you know, I would get the weird kind of vertigo of feeling like something is off in the room or in the house and um, not really sure of what to equate it to. It felt like suddenly uh, I was up at 10,000 feet in an airplane and the pressure changes or just suddenly feels like I'm half awake and drowsy. Like, I don't know if they were what if they were supernatural feelings? I don't know. I, I don't know, and I'm not proclaiming one way or the other, but what I can say is that I don't have the arrogance of a young militant atheist to say, bunch of horseshit, not, nothing there. Uh, yeah, I'm only 36, but I'm at least open enough to say, I don't know, maybe there was something there. Maybe that's why I felt that way. I feel strange walking into antique shops sometimes. Maybe that's just old stuff. Maybe I have an allergic reaction to a particular kind of dust mite from uh, an old glue that was used in old books. I don't know. I'm not proclaiming any kind of uh, 
supernatural powers, but uh, I don't know. Kids are open to stuff, but it used to be very common. We moved away from it as a society, and we're moving back. Um, so I, I'd like to see this trend continue. I'd like to see it become more available to everybody because it, it seems to have more dignity. It seems to have more honor to it to be able to be surrounded by family or have the privacy and peace of being in your own bed or wherever it is that you are set up in your home uh, rather than a strange place, a hospital, or you know, a place where you're not allowed to be with those who love you. So this has been a a particularly weird ranty episode about, uh, well, a number of different things, really, but uh, I think it's all just kind of striking towards a plea for dignity for people and something that is oftentimes just um, dealt with last minute as kind of a, uh, well, we're just kind of, we'll just we'll get through this and then we'll figure it out. Like, no, with just minimal foresight, you can figure out a more reverent way to get through this, just walking through the steps of life. And it doesn't have to be a surprise and it doesn't have to be tragedy and wailing and gnashing of teeth if you just have a conversation about it, if you talk with people about it, if you're open about it. So again, if my political ideology gets in the way of your enjoyment of this, I'm sorry. I'm willing to talk about it, but this is just, this is coming from basic uh, compassion for people that um, I, I generally don't think people should be suffering for not having enough money, but apparently that's kind of an alien concept in a capitalist society. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We're, we're dying at home more, which I think is a good thing. I'd like to have more people have that option available. Um, if you've got ideas on how to help propagate that, let me know. Reach out, send an email, send a message, uh, send a snail mail. Um, let me know your thoughts and how we can further increase that because I would like to, you know, make the world a little bit of a better place just one small step at a time. And yeah, sometimes that's just for me. Uh, making a nice meal for my family or uh, doing something fun, but it also could be a mitzvah for society. So how about I just stop it here and I say thank you for listening. Let's all just take a brave step forward. I'll talk to you next week.